This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Good morning and welcome to episode number 122 of GoToGrandma. This show is airing on Saturday, December the 9th, 2023. I'm your go-to grandma, Kathy Buckworth, and as much as I'm looking forward to sharing the show with you, I'm excited about going back in time as well. Back to a time when parents used to get upset about their kids watching four young men with the slightly shaggy haircuts, wearing collarless suits and ties, and singing about holding your hand. Times have changed just a bit. But a big part of why our styles and music have evolved to where they are today is down to that one group, the Beatles. Today on the show, award-winning Canadian author and journalist Deirdre Kelly is going to tell us why when she discusses her new book, Fashioning the Beatles, The Looks That Shook the World, and how they still continue to impact it with music and styles our grandkids enjoy today. Have you heard of the K-pop band BTS? Look them up. Then we go fast forward into the future with broadcast journalist and author of 20 books, Jay Ingram. His new book, The Future of Us, The Science of What We'll Eat, Where We'll Live, and Who We'll Be, is an in-depth look at the world around us today and where we are all going to take it. Does human life have an ultimate expiry date? Do you really want to live to 150? How optimistic or pessimistic should we be about the world we are leaving behind for our kids and Keith Richards? A fascinating discussion with Jay. Then, what is probate, and why do so many people try to avoid it? We have all the answers on our Take 5 with RBC interview this week. My immediate future is not avoiding my next infusion of coffee. Not sure if that will extend my life or not, but I'll tell you what. After a hard day's night, it'll please please me, and this rubber soul can use all the help it can get. After that intro, Deirdre is up first. Deirdre Kelly is an award-winning journalist and author based in Toronto, Canada. A former Globe and Mail newspaper columnist, arts critic, and investigative reporter, she's the author of the books Paris Times 8 and Ballerina Sex, Scandal, and Suffering Behind the Symbol of Perfection. Her latest nonfiction title, Fashioning the Beatles, The Looks That Shook the World, came out in September and is currently a number one bestseller on Amazon. Good morning, Deirdre Kelly. Thanks so much for being on GoToGrandma. Thank you, Kathy, for inviting me. What a treat. I'm very excited about your new book, um, and it is about the Beatles. It is called Fashioning the Beatles, The Looks That Shook the World. And I'm going to start us off by just reading a little quick paragraph here that you wrote. Clothing to the Beatles was neither simply utilitarian nor a frill. It was a visible manifestation of their uninhibited creativity and never-ending quest for originality a key component of their unprecedented success and enormous fame. That's quite a sentence, isn't it? The fashion, how much do you think it had to do with the level of success that they achieved? I think it had a great deal to do with it, and that is something that I think prior to this book has tended to be, if not ignored or at least underplayed, because the Beatles' look was intentional. They, all of them, as four individuals, had a real passion and love of clothing as a form of self-expression. They use clothing to form a band identity. And in fact, when they first meet each other separately, individually, they jive first on a level of appearance, 
more than on a level of musicianship. Sure, they all loved rock and roll, but they all loved the look, the cool, the vibe. They honed a look from various sources. So they often weren't just in fashion, in fact, that they were more in pursuit of a personalized style. And that's what I think made them so unique and fascinating to look at from the get-go. And of course, when they first started out as the quarrymen, they sort of were in, in uniform, right? But So what do you think led them to their individuality? I think it's because they grew up in a post-war Britain that was riddled with rations. And as Paul McCartney himself has said, it was quite beige. <laughs> and what the Beatles themselves had a sense of wanting to inject color into that, I guess, social and cultural blandness. Uh, And they wanted to break out through clothing and also music as a form of rebellion against what had been there before. In terms of their dress, that meant dressing like their fathers or the military, in fact, because the Beatles all come of age at a time when national service, which was a kind of conscription for all youth at their age, was suddenly dissolved, and it gave them a great freedom to dress as they wanted to dress, as creatives and as individuals who were going to live life on their own terms and not be at all compelled to conform. And it wasn't just their clothing, was it, Deirdre? Their hair their hair. That had a lot to do with it. So how much was the hair a part of their whole look? It was pretty pretty important, I think. The hair was extremely important to the Beatles, let's say, notoriety. They didn't invent that haircut, of course. Uh, in fact, all of them prior to 1960 had that slicked back look that actually was imitated uh, from Hollywood movies and, in fact, was known as the Tony Curtis. <laughs> was also called the Duck's Arse, or D.A., because <laughs> nice. when you flicked it back and parted it in the, in, in the middle, it apparently <laughs> resembled a duck's back. Very visual. I quite looked that closely. <laughs> but anyway, so the Beatles went to Europe, and that's where the new wave cinema of France, for instance, uh, you know, there was a starting to have a hair style that was coming over the forehead, brushed forward, washed the brill cream washed out, so to think. And it was John and Paul who first adopted that haircut, notably because they were in Paris on a vacation and their hairstyle was anti-fashion, anti-style, and it wasn't attracting the girls. So they asked a fellow friend from Germany who was in Paris at the time to cut it for them. And they come back to England with this new continental look that George Harrison soon after acquired. And then when Ringo joined the band, that was one of the things he had to do before he could join the band, which was to change his hairstyle to be like theirs. So it was an intentional look. And when it comes to be seen in North America the first time in 1964 when the Beatles arrived, it created such controversy because men or boys at that time just didn't show their, um, you know, their their hair that long. 
even though from our standards it doesn't even look that long. No, exactly. But it created kind of fear and loathing in all of society because it was seen as effeminate. It was seen as unusual. And it actually really made the Beatles love them or hate them at that time talked about and known. One of the most talked about and iconic shots of the Beatles, of course, is that Abbey Road shot of them crossing uh, the crosswalk. Um, How intentional were each of their individual fashion choices in that shot? That's such a great um, image. I think all of us can see it in our Mm -hmm. minds to bring up. Because what was interesting there is, yeah, it looks like four individual Beatles, but my research found that actually three of the four are in suits, and they're all wearing suits by the exact same designer, cut by the exact same tailor, uh, and that was Tommy Nutter, who was the the, the designer there, but it was Edward Sexton, who just sadly passed away this past July, who cut the suits, and so he was able to tell me all about that. And he spoke about how each beetle did have a specific requirement for those suits. Those suits were bespoke and uh, custom-made, not necessarily for the occasion. And that's what he was talking about, is that, you know, the Beatles never had any stylist. They didn't ever allow anyone to tell them how to dress or how to be. And yet on that one day, three of them show up, as they say, kind of unified at the same time, you know, <laughs> wearing, wearing uh, a similar designer. George Harrison, of course, is the outlier in that shot. He's wearing head-to-toe denim, and my theory about that is because he's recently been turned on by Bonnie and Delaney, uh, sort of Americana rock. He's rekindled a great friendship with Bob Dylan, and he's I think going in that way and with the band as well. Yeah, these, I mean, the the stories behind so many of the photos you delve into quite a bit in this book. It's so interesting. You take us right up to the present in terms of perhaps the influence they've had on BTS, in fact. Um, I love mm-hmm. this book, and uh, for any Beatles fans, it's obviously a must-read. We can find it anywhere books are sold, I'm sure. It's called Fashioning the Beatles, The Looks That Shook the World, and if we find it, want to find out more about Deirdre, of course, we can find you on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Thank you so much for this interview, Deirdre. Thank you, Kathy. What a great conversation. Science broadcaster and writer Jay Ingram has hosted two national science programs in Canada. He was co-host of Discovery Channel's science show Daily Planet for 16 years and host of CBC Radio's Quirks and Quarks. Jay has six honorary degrees, was awarded the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal, and is a member of the Order of Canada. The Future of Us is Jay's 20th book. Good morning, Jay. Thanks so much for coming on GoToGrandma. My pleasure. Good morning to you, too. So your book, The Future of Us, is quite an in-depth look into where we might be going, doing, eating, etc. And I just wanted to read a quick paragraph off the top that you wrote to launch us into this. Should you be optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Wherever you land on that question will be more a reflection of your personal outlook than any compilation of data and trends. Okay, now that said, you do get into quite a bit of data and trends in the book, and it's fascinating. So is it even important to think about the future? Because maybe we don't do it that much. Well, we definitely, as human beings, don't do it that much. And all you have to do is think about, you know, you think about tomorrow and next week and maybe next summer. But 10 years from now, 
very few people do that. I think it's important not so much to make predictions, because that's very, very risky, but to familiarize yourself with technology, in the case of my book, but other factors that are going to influence the future. And, you know, it's kind of funny, that optimist-pessimist thing that you mentioned that I wrote, because in in talking about my book, people are, are split. Half have said I'm optimistic, half have said I'm pessimistic. So, Maybe that's the perfect uh, stance to take. I just think you can't think about future technology without thinking about who's going to benefit, is it going to be equitable? Those are important issues. Absolutely. And so when you went through a lot of the things you see coming for us in the future, which one, if we're being optimists here, which potential future development are you most excited about? Uh, What am I optimistic about? Well, you know, this may surprise you because this doesn't affect a huge number of people. But prosthetics, Mm. you know, people who have unfortunately lost a limb, a hand, or whatever, I think that prosthetics are already going to be, are already much better and are going to be spectacular in the future. So that, you know, an artificial hand will be controlled by the person's brain and will behave like a real hand. And I think the spin-offs from this are going to be pretty incredible. Now, I'm quite optimistic about the replacement of lost limbs, hands and feet and so on. I'm not so optimistic what the military will do with the technological advances here, because if you can make somebody whole again, just like new, Mm -hmm. can't you make them better like the $6 million man? And wouldn't it be nice to have armed forces that are more powerful, faster, you know, so um, almost everything is, <laughs> has an optimistic and pessimistic balance to it. Yes, and I love that you got into the $6 million man and the bionic woman in the book. Actually, you address both of those. Um, and I agree. While that doesn't affect prosthetics, don't affect a huge part of the population, what a huge difference it will make for that part of the population. So certainly something to feel positive about. Yeah, so, you know, I think that's right. I think you have to think about, if I could just go back over your question, you have to think about, Uh, which populations are going to benefit and which are not. Now, in terms of if you go beyond prosthetics, I'm um, I'm kind of optimistic about food production in the future because the challenge is immense. I mean, estimates are that we have to produce at least 50% more food by 2050 to feed not just the extra 2 billion people that will be on Earth, but also tastes. You know, it's quite remarkable that as income rises, people's food tastes change. Mm -hmm. And traditionally, historically, it's been that the more money you have, the more meat you buy and the more meat you eat. But, you know, the various ways we produce meat now, cattle, uh, sheep, pigs, chickens, they all have an impact on the environment, cattle the most. And that's why I'm interested in, in the book, Um, Other sources of protein, like insects, people laugh, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I think there's a good reason to think that'll, it's already happening. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm just not here in Canada, but um, also maybe lab-grown meat, it's starting to appear. uh, It requires a huge technological upgrade to be able to produce meat on a scale that you could sell, but I'm optimistic about that. The thing is, We had a green revolution in the 60s and 70s. 
It's claimed to have saved the lives of 800 million people. So it was spectacular. But it increased more herbicides, more pesticides, more water use, more fossil fuel use. We can't really go through that again. We have to come up with something new. Yeah, there's always that flip side of the coin, isn't there? And what, Jay, you know, one of the things we think about for the future is the flying car. Come on, when's the flying car coming? I need to know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, it's so funny. When I started thinking about this book, I thought, oh, my God, I don't have to talk about the flying car. (laughs) Yes, you do. But everybody wants to talk about the flying car. And, And I found out, to my surprise, I'll tell you two very quick stories. One, the first flying car was on the road about five years after the Wright brothers first flew. Oh, wow. So this is not a new idea. But the idea that we have, the Jetsons, and you've got a, you've got a flying car in your garage. No, you don't. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, people object to having, um, you know, one, one family neighborhoods turned into places where you can have basement apartments. How are they going to feel if the guy down the street backs out of his driveway, extends wings, huge wings on either side, and, and uses your street as a runway. That's never going to happen. But, but France has already announced there are going to be flying cars at the Olympics. Hmm. And uh, I think these are going to look like one or two passenger kind of uh, drones. But you know what? In the long run, I don't think flying cars are going to have any impact at all. Well, uh, we already freak out about drones, right, invading our space and things like that. So it will be interesting to see where that goes. I'm talking with Jay Ingram. The book is called The Future of Us, The Science of What We'll Eat, Where We'll Live, and Who We'll Be. And I encourage you to pick it up. And I particularly also enjoyed the chapter, Jay, on do we really want to live to be 150? And I'll leave that to our listeners to find that in the book when they discover it. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. Leanne Kaufman is the president and CEO of the Royal Trust Corporation of Canada and the Royal Trust Company. She is responsible for the strategy and overall management of RBC Royal Trust, which provides wealth protection and transfer solutions across generations to high net wealth Canadian families. A lawyer by profession, Leanne is the author of the fourth edition of the Executor's Handbook, a contributor to various publications on the topic of estates and trusts, and the host of RBC Wealth Management's Matters Beyond Wealth podcast. Good morning, Leanne Kaufman. Thanks so much for coming back on GoToGrandma for our Take 5 with RBC segment. Thanks, Kathy. So today we are talking about probate and why do people try so hard to avoid it? So a lot of people have heard about probate if they've been involved in a loved one's estate or planning their own. But what exactly is probate? Yeah, it's it's a bit of a mystery for most, isn't it? A lot of Canadians don't know much about probate, except maybe that it's something you should try to avoid. (laughs) That might be the one thing they all know. So really what probate is, it's it's a formal court process where the court is certifying that the will is the last one that that deceased person created and that the person named in the will as the executor has been rightfully appointed under the rules in that province, so therefore they have the necessary authority to deal with that person's estate. So it's kind of like a little bit of a court blessing that recognizes the authority. Now, you know, one of the reasons people try so hard to avoid it, and we might talk about this a bit further, but is the cost in some provinces, not all provinces, but, you know, fees for probate, or sometimes it's called probate tax, do vary from province to province. 
and can be as low as, you know, a few hundred dollars in some provinces and territories, up to as much as 15 or $17 for every $1,000 of probatable assets in the estate. So just for context, that would mean like a million-dollar estate would be subject to probate fees of between fifteen and $17,000. Wow, that's quite a bit. So can you share some insight into why some executors would need to seek probate while others would not? Yes, because it validates the authority of the executor, a lot of third parties will ask for probate in order to recognize that executor's authority. And the only way they're really protected from liability is if they do get that probate or they see that the court has blessed that particular executor. So typically that's going to be financial institutions. It could be government agencies that want to see that probate to make sure they're dealing with the authorized executor. Land transfer is another spot that is almost always going to require a probated will so that the land registry office will recognize the authority of the executor in making whatever transfers it is to get that property out of the name of the deceased and into the hands of the beneficiaries or a seller, a buyer, I mean, or or whoever it might be. Mm -hmm. And then there's some other reasons that help to protect the executor, like For example, in some provinces, there are limitation periods where, you know, actions can no longer be brought against an estate that are tied to the date of probate, not the date of death or some other date. Then, you know, the reasons why people try so hard to avoid it focus more on things like, well, we've already talked about the cost, Mm -hmm. right? It can be quite high in some provinces. There could be delay associated with it. Uh, Certainly during COVID, it was very lengthy. The courts were very backlogged and it took a long time. I think they've caught up a little bit, but it could still delay administration of estates and gathering the necessary assets, like, you know, getting those bank accounts unfrozen, for example. Mm -hmm. It could delay it by months. And then the third thing that not everyone understands is there's a confidentiality aspect. So probate is a public process, meaning that anyone who understands how to do it can go down to the courthouse and take a look at a probated will and the documents that went along with it. And so that may include some information about beneficiaries, about assets, about liabilities, who's getting and who's not getting. I mean, it can be, um, you know, some people don't want that kind of publicity to their will. So what are some of the ways that people generally try to avoid probate? And are there risks involved with these strategies? Yeah, so one of the most common ones is joint tenancy, right? Because people understand that if they've got a joint account, then it becomes, there's this right of survivorship, it's called, which means on the death of one, that the asset becomes wholly owned by the person by the other joint holder. Now, you know, that becomes a little bit risky when it comes to, you know, that now becomes an asset of that joint holder if it's a traditional, you know, joint tenancy with right of survivor, either account or you're holding a piece of land that way. So, you know, if you've done that with a child, for example, you're now exposing that to potentially exposing that to the creditors of that child. If they were to get into any financial difficulty, it could create some messiness if there was marriage breakdown, for example. Is that an asset of the marriage? And there can be disputes about whether it was really even intended to be a gift to that person or whether it was just done for convenience purposes. And there's some law on this. So, you know, that's the risk that I would say associated with joint ownership. And obviously, it's far more complicated than we can get into in five minutes. Mm -hmm. A couple of other things, just very quickly, trust, like putting assets into trust removes it from the personal ownership of the individual. And so therefore, the assets in the trust don't form part of the estate, and therefore, they're not probatable assets. And then the third, which has some of the same risks that I just talked about with joint tenancy, is just making a gift during your lifetime. 
you know, whether that's a cottage or some money or whatever the case may be, you just you get it out of your hands and get it in the hands of the person that you want to receive it. Of course, risk associated with that. But all of these really, I think, need careful planning and advice to make sure those potential consequences and risks are discussed. As you say, so much to get into in just five minutes. So if we want some more information, we can go to rbc.com slash royal trust. Thanks so much for this, Leanne. My pleasure. When I was five years old, my mother always told me that happiness was the key to life. When I went to school, they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wrote down happy. They told me I didn't understand the assignment, and I told them they didn't understand life. John Lennon. Well, hopefully we all understand life a bit better today after my discussions with Jay and Deirdre, and we can look forward to next week's show as well. On episode 123 of GoToGrandma, we are going to be working on staying healthy and well-rested for the holidays, which hopefully we are able to spend with our kids and grandkids. Exercise guru Marika Peterson is back on the show to tell us about her tips for a holiday workout you can take anywhere, on a plane, on a train, in a boat, with a goat. Well, maybe if you're into goat yoga. Hotel rooms, guest rooms, she'll help us stay fit while we're getting fat on holiday memories. But speaking of guest rooms, how do you sleep when you are either in a toddler bed next to a crib or on a sofa? Sometimes we don't always end up with the best beds when we travel to visit our grandkids. So sleep expert Alana McGinn is also back to give us some tips on how to make sure we can set up the best possible sleep environment no matter where we are and how to help those grandkids settle during all the holiday excitement. Sweating and sleeping, something to look forward to. Our Take 5 with RBC interview will be a rich one as we look at the anticipated significant intergenerational transfer of wealth which is expected to happen in the near future. That's something we might lose some sleep over, but not after this expert advice. Thanks for dropping in once again. Please look us up on the podcast. We're just go to Grandma, and that's me, Kathy Buckworth. Enjoy your grand journey. Share your thoughts on this show with us. You can find Kathy on Instagram at Kathy Buckworth or email her Kathy at KathyBuckworth.com. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.